0: Welcome to the Cops and Writers Podcast. On this show, you will learn how to write the best crime-related novel or screenplay possible. Your host, Sergeant Patrick O'Donnell, worked the streets in one of the nation's largest police departments for over 25 years. Ride along with O'Donnell and his expert guests as they help you navigate the oftentimes confusing and misunderstood world of law enforcement. O'Donnell and his guests on this show do not represent any law enforcement agency. The content of this show is not meant to be legal advice. If you think you need a lawyer, you probably do. Hey,
1: Cops and Writers, thanks for being here with us today for another episode of the Cops and Writers Podcast. I'm Patrick O'Donnell, and I'll be your host for today's show. My first order of business to thank those of you who are patrons of the show, most notably Frank Carson, Francis Sheldrick, Kathleen Donnelly, Frank Ross, Gary Edginton, J.K. Doane, Kathleen Kovachik, and Richard Tolls. Your generosity helps pay for the software, equipment, and my time producing this show. Yes, you too can become a patron for less than a cup of coffee or a pint of Guinness. Just go on over to patreon.com forward slash Writers. I would also like to thank all of you who have purchased my books in the Cops and Writers series available on Amazon. On today's show, we cross the pond to the birthplace of my parents, Ireland, where we chat with returning guests and my favorite Garda, Marie O'Halloran. Casey King is the crime-writing alter-ego of crime fighter Marie O'Halloran. She has spent over two decades as a member of the Irish Police Force, also known as the Engarda Chacona, and has a diploma in Policing Studies. Throughout her career, she has worked on various gangland operations, drugs investigations, as well as having roles as an exhibits officer, community liaison officer, and traveler liaison officer. Marie O'Haran is represented by London agent Kate Nash of Kate Nash Literary Agency. Casey has recently listed in the Bookseller Magazine's agent hot list for London's book fair. As a playwright... Casey co-wrote the commercially staged play Catching the Train and most recently had one of her plays long-listed in 2019 Wexford Literary Festival's Billy Roche International Short Play Award. Her debut thriller novel, Deceit, was released on September 21st and is burning up the charts. And the follow-up to this book, Exposed, is set for release December 14th. In today's episode, we discuss how Marie got involved in law enforcement, the process of becoming an Irish police officer and the training and equipment, her her career path in the Engarda of how she juggled being a mom and wife while working different hours and holidays, her beginnings in writing, including the therapeutic effects of writing poetry, book one of the Dublin thriller book series, Deceit, her writing process, and Marie's future writing projects. All this and more on today's episode of the Cops and Writers Podcast. Cade Mille Falcha, Marie (laughs)
2: O'Halloran.
1: No, there's nothing wrong with your radios, folks. (laughs) We're speaking in Irish because I have Marie O'Halloran, my favorite Garda, back on the show for her third time. And it's not even St. Paddy's Day. How are you doing It's
2: not I'm doing good so just for the your listeners there I said uh thank you to Patrick for welcoming me on and I asked him how he was so how are you
1: I'm doing great I'm doing fabulous so Maria Halloran, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself born and raised in Ireland primarily county Cork, correct
2: Yes, primarily County Cork. And um, I've worked away in different counties, but um, I happened to return to my home county and not far from where I grew up, actually, and settled there then and um, happily living in County Cork, down in Munster, down in. Republic of Ireland. So it's a great spot, even though we're in the midst of storm Agnes today. So that'll give me a clue when we're recording this. So <laughs> at the blind down. So if you say there should be no trampolines flying past or anything, <laughs> like the blind down. So, yeah. So, well, hopefully um, we
1: don't lose power. That, that's what I'm concerned about.
2: That's what I was worried about. But the, the connection seems to be OK. So far, so good. OK. Uh, but, um, so, yeah, back in back in the late 90s, then I, I joined the guards. And, um, I loved it. I, I did, uh, uniform work. I did special ops plainclothes work. Um, back in uniform again, passed my sergeant's exam. Um, wanted to go to, um, Cyprus on a UN tour duty. And I was about a decade into my service when I got entered on duty and, uh, it changed the trajectory of my career completely. And while I was recovering, and we've discussed this before, sure. Patrick, while I was recovering and kind of as a need to get out of my own head, I rediscovered my love of writing. So that's roughly about 12 years ago. Wow. And it got me, yeah, out of my head, out of thinking, you know, once I realized, oh, you know, that will things ever be the same again? And um, I went to a workshop in the local library. Libraries are brilliant. Went to the workshop. Uh met uh, a, a girl there who I'm still friends with. Uh, she's a writer herself, mm-hmm. uh, Mary Bradford. And she said to me, come into the library. I come in and write in the library, come in, which is something together. Well, not as a book group, not as a writing group, but just side by side. Yeah. Um, brainstorm with each other and chat. And the did poetry plays, short stories. It started getting commended in competitions. And then I turned to crime. Oh, look at what you. very good you didn't turn to
1: crime no you're you're (laughs) (laughs) crime writing but so you got involved in law enforcement how old were you
2: i was there you go you keep doing that i know know. i I shouldn't
1: ask i'm sorry
2: (laughs) i was in my early 20s
1: okay now in ireland is there a um like in America, in most um, municipalities, it's 21. You have to be at least 21. Is that the way it is in Ireland? No, you
0: think? no uh,
2: 18. 18. But there was a height restriction when I joined. And they've, they've since raised the age bar. So up to 35. And I think they're raising it again. Um, but the, it was a height restriction, which is now gone. So you had to be 5.8 for a female and 5.8 for a guy. So, uh, yeah, five, I'm five foot five and one
1: so, so five foot five was the cutoff
2: yeah, for females? Yeah. So, oh I, I, I might have lost a few centimeters, all right, my injury and duty, but maybe <laughs> a few millimeters. But look, the high restrictions gone. They weren't going to kick me out of that stage anyway. I was doing too good a job.
1: <laughs> so, you know, you, you get the, uh, you pass, I imagine there's, you know, written exams, oral exams, all that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, well, well. At the time I did it, there would have been written exams and interviews. Um, that has changed vastly. Again, there are situational questions now, and then the okay. physical and interview. But there's a physical at the end of it. They changed the physical now because they did away with the height restriction. Um, medical, you know, you've all that were the measure of the height and all that stuff to see you standing straight and breathing. Um. Yeah. And yeah, and and it's down to Templemore in the college. It's a it's um a quicker turnaround for training. But when I was training, it was um, six months as a student, six months as a student in a station, then you were back in for a period of time. So overall, it was about two years training. Um You were you were tested. What's called a test after a year. So you were you were a fledgling before that, but you were full guard probational before that. And then a okay. uh, full guard then uh, after about 12 months. Uh, but you were still on probation. But they've changed it now. And um, we're of the, the class that can actually buy back that six months is counted as service now. So your service didn't start until you were tested. Oh, wow. Okay. you got your okay. badge and you got your baton and that was it. And your uniform and you were out in the street.
0: Ta da. <laughs>
2: there, <you Yeah>, <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Off you go now at the street, girly, and you can do your best.
1: <laughs> now, I think from our conversations before, it was Garda College, correct?
2: Garda College in Timbermore, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. When I, I joke about going out in the street, you you most likely wouldn't be a more experienced officer. As a probationer, you would have anyway. And right. I was fortunate enough to have joined when. The cohort of guards are quite senior with 25 years plus. So, with 25 years oh, plus. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. It was like you could stay in the college for years, but the, you know, like colleagues like that will teach you so much as long as you're open and willing to listen and learn, sure. you will ha- learn so much more than you ever will in books, the situational stuff, um, reactional stuff, just dealing with things and, you know, and nothing is black and white. And I could safely say after two, over two get- decades in the job, there are no two, Calls you ever, and you probably say the same, Patrick. There were no two calls that you would ever go to no. that you could say were the same. That the, you. You know what laws you could use, both.
1: Right, right. You know what your rules and procedures, your SOPs. You know, yeah. state law, federal law. You know, blah, blah, blah. But like you said, it's that's the unique thing about law enforcement. Mm. Every call you go to, there's some little twist. There's some little thing yes. that is not in a book. It's you know you're. Your greatest asset is your ability to think on your feet and you have to. You yeah. got to you got to make decisions, sometimes right, sometimes wrong, but hesitation yeah. is what is where you're going to get in trouble and it's you just have to do something. You know, you can't yes. just not do something. And mm. sometimes doing something is walking out the door and saying, "See ya, peace out."
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> so you get through all of that, you know, what kind of equipment did they issue you and compared to like today do you know what the difference?
2: Back in my day. Back in um, your
1: day, you're you're, you're a salty day. vet now, yes.
2: Yeah, yeah, You got actually I've seen quite a chord of changes actually over the, the the decades. So even the uniform change. So we had um a truncheon, I suppose is the best way to describe it. So you had a 12-inch timber stick and that would slide into an extra back pocket that was behind your um one of the your thighs on your Mm -hmm. your trousers. So the the uniform was equipped to take that. So then that changed to to an extendable button and we had to go undergo training for that. So then um it it, you could still put it into that button pocket, but you the you got a utility belt that would adapt. It had a holder for it. Mm -hmm. Um then it was um a proof vest. We had no we had nothing like that when I was I was trained, first the the stab proof vest came. Then um, we got pepper spray. Then um, and now there is the now there's the pepper spray, the extendable baton, uh, the ballistics vest, the stab proof vest. So when I went out, there was a baton. That's it. That's it. Okay. Ability to <laughs> top down. So you still carry that ability. To yeah. talk down situations, but but over the over the years and the change, of, and even the uniform has changed. The the there was a big change in uniform there in the past twelve months. So instead of the wool trousers and and the shirt, I, even when I mean, so first the shirts we got as as female members, there were one inch, two inch square pockets that you couldn't even fit a a, a pencil sharpener into. <laughs> You know, you had no back pockets in your trousers. You had to go to stores and talk nice, to see what they give you on the lads' trousers with the oh, pockets at the back and the shirts that were big enough to hold your notebook. And then, like that, that evolved. Shirts evolved. The trousers mm-hmm. evolved. And then they they changed it completely to, um, like cargo pants and polo shirt. And they they up- updated the equipment basically to. I, they, the tie is done away with as well the tie um it was always a clip-on tie anyway to right. um, avoid the risk of, of choking you know if someone caught it but um even that you know and you had you always had your tie and your tie pin, you know which was <laughs> and and then you had you still have your dress uniform so if there's ceremonial stuff to be done sure you still have the wool trousers and the the jacket and the belt and you know your your whistle and your um typing, and I, uh, you know, your epaulets. You still have the epaulets, but there, there, there has been a lot, lot of changes over the years that I've seen. Even the, um, the computer system when I went in first, like there was no. I mean, it's it's widely known that the system is called Pulse, because uh, a lot of writers would include it in their writing anyway. Yeah. It's the it's the information system. Um, but before that, there was nothing like that. It was like um. You know, like the old how do I, how do I put it? It's like kind of you know you could type in one line and there was a blinker and then it would answer you with yep, with yep. lines of sure. it was kind of like the green cursor in the black yep. background. It I know exactly kind of like what you're that. talking about. But yes, it did have it did have important information, but it wasn't what it was. The, Is there today? I mean, it it was it was literally like yeah.
0: <laughs> really yeah. old. And I remember
1: the yeah. dot matrix printers, the one that made that like cool noise. <laughs> yeah, we had those
2: two, yeah, and yeah, yeah. It, was, it was all upgraded to that. And there was there was fax machines as well until oh recently. yeah, absolutely, yeah, but they're we, very secure.
1: We still use fax machines
2: hmm.
1: for certain things.
2: They're, I mean, they're really se- they're they're secure, like, so
1: yeah, you're absolutely right about that. You're absolutely right. Nobody's gonna yeah. hack your fax. Yeah, you know, no, nope. you know, so yeah, there there is something to be said about that. But every Doesn't district station,
2: great, every district great T-shirt, yeah, fax.
1: <laughs> yeah, every district station had a uh, fax machine, and yeah. certain things would have to go via fax. And you know, I mm-hmm. it's like, all right, whatever. Now, do guards in today's time do, are they issued tasers?
0: We'll be right back. In Kenosha, Wisconsin, a motley collection of strangers come together to sit in judgment for what becomes the longest trial in state history. A man stands accused of murdering his wife by antifreeze poisoning.
1: Along the way, these strangers find more in common than anyone expected, evolving into something beyond a simple jury of peers. One year later, they reunite, only to find that they've been poisoned by what suspiciously looks like antifreeze. Is this revenge for their verdict or forewarning of something more sinister to come? The clock is ticking, and as time winds down, Vengeance turns wickedly ironic. Inspired by the real-life jury experience of author Ken Humphrey, The Breakfast Jury is a fast-paced summer novel guaranteed to leave readers guessing until the last page. Pick up this murder mystery now at KenHumphrey.com. Peek behind the curtain of a sordid murder that will make you
0: wonder, did that really happen? Again, that's KenHumphrey.com.
2: The the Emergency Response Unit and the Regional Support Units are are armed and they would have tasers but they're they're they're, they're you know there's still there's obviously rules around using them but they are the ones that have so tasers. The,
1: so the people who have like gun guns also have tasers yes okay so the people who don't have guns don't have tasers
2: no. wow
1: that doesn't make any sense to me but okay <laughs> yeah you know, it, it depends on the department you know everybody's like well why didn't they just use a taser and i'm like i did 25 years and i never had one i never went to taser training but like new recruits i think within the last five years all Mm -hmm. got taser trained when they were in the academy but they didn't have their own taser you know there'd be a pool of tasers you know just like radios or rifles or whatever there's only so many and so many cops for a shift so not everybody got a chance so You know, if I had 20, 25 cops out on the street on day shift, I would have like maybe three or four that were taser trained.
0: Hmm.
1: And then maybe about five of us, eh, three to five of us would have a rifle and we'd also have a shotgun, but then we'd have the M4 rifle as well. We we got trained up in that. Hmm. So there's that. And the other thing I was going to ask you, how about body cameras? Do you guys have body cameras?
2: No, not at the moment.
1: Okay. Okay.
2: Yeah, you know, there, there there are talks about it again. It's one of those things that the 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 people way above my pay grade will be deciding,
0: on. right? But
2: yeah, there is there there's a few headlines at the moment, and there are talks, and they the they're, they're talking about bringing in the legislation.
1: I know. I think they have them across the pond. They have them in England, don't they? The yeah, I
0: believe English... they do, Yeah,
1: yeah I, I believe they do. You know, I it's a love hate relationship with body cameras with cops. You know, at first, you know, we don't want any change. You know, it's like, no, I I don't want this thing that recording me, you know, and there was all kinds of rules. It's like, okay,
0: yeah,
1: you know, if you were having a conversation with another cop, if you're having a conversation with your boss, you know, obviously they don't want the body cam rolling while you're just, you know, driving around with your partner. You know, bitching about your wife or your husband, you know, something yeah. like that. Nobody wants yeah. to hear that.
2: And, and have to bring it, bring, produce it in court as evidence. Exactly.
1: But yeah, and the going,
2: honey, the big, I just have to tell you to <laughs> uh, this conversation.
1: But the yeah. biggest, uh, the, one of the biggest um, barriers for the body camera is like anything in law enforcement, it comes down to money. It's not just the body camera itself it's the cloud storage which becomes very expensive when you have a big department you have a ton of cops out there taking thousands of assignments a day right. you know that's a whole lot of storage and moving pieces and then you have to have people vet it so mm-hmm. say they're you know they're interviewing somebody or they're at a scene and there's juveniles you have to take the part out where there's juveniles if you know that person's a juvenile you know they're under 18 years old they can't be on there so somebody has to go through every hour, every minute of that body. And you have to pay those people to do it. Yeah. So, you know, politicians love to, you know, like snap their fingers. It's like, poof, I want body cameras. And it's like, uh, our budget's at a deficit right now. We have no money. <laughs> you know, where is that going to come from? You know, yes, I would love to have all kinds of stuff, but,
0: yeah,
1: you know, and Yes, body cameras have gotten cops into trouble, and sometimes deservedly so, but it's also saved a bunch of uh, cops as well, as far as, you know, being a boss, people would come to the front counter and make a complaint. And it's like, okay. And it's like, he called me, or she called me X, Y, or Z at this traffic stop. Okay, perfect. Mm -hmm. I'll just pull up their body camera footage. You want to come back with me? Because I knew 99.9% of the time, they're lying. They're just salty because they got a ticket. They were mad. You know, it's like, yeah. okay. And then, you know, they would, it would deescalate very quickly. And it was like, well, you know, my feelings are hurt, and I'm like, okay, sorry about your feelings. And it's like, there's the door. And the second yeah. thing that really gets my goat with body cameras, and I've said this before, is juries, internal affairs, the chief, they shouldn't see things in slow motion for a recording. Because that Mm -hmm. cop didn't see it in slow motion.
2: Oh, right. Yeah.
1: It should be in real time. Just like, Mm -hmm. you all you're running down the alley at two o'clock in the morning with a guy who has a gun. And there's a split second where either he turns and it's like, oh, that cop just shot him in the back. Why did he do that? Or Mm -hmm. the guy drops the gun as the cop is shooting, you know, Mm -hmm. or, you know, there's a hundred different scenarios, but a jury the district attorney bosses it's like it's so easy to sit back and just play armchair mm-hmm. quarterback and just critique them over you know they had half a second to make that decision
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know you have hours to look at this video that's just not fair and it's not right
2: yeah it's 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 not like the var and the soccer
1: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no replay. <laughs> yeah, replay, we don't get to like yeah. do it over. Do over. Yeah. yeah. So, the Garda, they're obviously all over Ireland, so there isn't like a specific police force for each city or little town. It's all Garda. It's like a federal law enforcement, correct? It's
2: one. It's the one, yeah. It's the one um you've jurisdiction all over the country. Mm-hmm. Um it will be divided into districts. Um, and divisions, um and they, yeah, but you would have jurisdiction, like if you went to mail to help um your colleagues, you have the same power they have there. It doesn't, okay, you know, it doesn't stop or stop or change at a county border it's it, it's it's all the one,
0: okay,
1: so this being you know, it's a fairly large island. did you have any saying where you know you're a fresh graduate out of Garda college? Did you have input as far as like, hey, I live in Mayo. I don't want to be like in Cork or, you know, vice versa. Did did they listen to that?
2: No, I didn't have a say. No, you don't have a say. It would depend on where the need arises. You know, it would depend on where a certain um, aspect of crime has increased. Um, Because often the benefit of new recruits going to an area means that the more experienced officers can concentrate on if there's an aspect of of criminality that has increased in that area mm. so that is that it, it just depends on the 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 I suppose the conditions at the time and what's going on at the time okay um where the need arises you know it's it, it is about you know filling filling you know where the need is and 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 putting people there and uh, like it's not that the new recruits be Straight in and doing kind of more experienced work, but they're they would uh, them being there would allow the um more experienced officers to concentrate on particular crimes that may have increased, you know, or have the potential to increase, you know, because their local knowledge will be good. And I'd say it's would it's a very valuable learning tool as well to be partnered with experienced members. As a oh, sure. With
1: absolutely hopefully a good experienced member just because you have experience doesn't always mean that they're yeah. a good cop unfortunately
2: yeah that's true
1: <laughs> so you know you're a new cop and how far away from home were you um stationed when your first I uh was, your first duty station
2: i was a few hours from home i did okay. um my my student placement in Kilkenny city and um so I lived in the city, I really enjoyed it. Okay it's a city. Um still is fantastic city, uh small city. Okay. And uh, some people don't call it that because but unless you've worked there, lived there, you kind of see, you know, the mm. city status it has. But I loved it. Um and then as a student, I was a student that time, and then I was sent to we did a traffic management operation. Around Christmas and approaching Christmas called free flow at the time that they, that's not done as such anymore. So everybody from my phase was sent to Dublin and the various stations, various stations all over Dublin in order to ensure it was a traffic management operation. So Mm -hmm. ensure it's called free flow. So the free flowing basically of traffic because of the shopping rush and because of Christmas. So I was stationed in Dublin for um for a number of weeks actually it was weeks more than months and um like that getting accommodation for a few weeks is kind of tough going but I did manage to get accommodation for a few weeks but then on um just I think it's the week after Christmas that year we got our we'll say full-time stations so I was sent back okay. down to down the country to Limerick so yeah okay. uh, so gotcha. not to yeah that like enough, a far enough away from home, but not minimized. Like it wasn't a three hour journey or anything. Right. Way, you know? Right. Uh, yeah. It wasn't too bad. Um, I got home for Christmas unless I was working. You know, oh, so. nice.
1: So looking back at your police career, was it what you expected? Like when you got into Garda college, you know, looking back, you know, <laughs> what were the surprises or what were some of the things that kind of threw you a little bit? It's like, wow, I didn't see that. I didn't see that coming. I didn't no. think it would be like this, or was it like what you thought it would be?
2: I didn't. I think I went in with a completely open mind and no expectations. And okay. Um, it, it it was just the volume of information. You you know you, the learning. That, that, I wasn't intimidated by that. I actually um, got very good marks because the learning was um, continuous assessment actually. And it, it just method of learning suited me. Um, I, the physical aspect, I think um, I had been training, but I mean, there was nothing like the training you were doing. You had to pass a run and, you know, um, there was all that physicality. That was fine. Um we did, we did, you know, self-defense training and stuff, but I actually continued it on when I went out mm. because um, you get basics down there. The marching, I think, was the most surprising. The amount of marching, you know, yeah. and this, the, you know, the um, examining your uniform and examining you every, I think it was Tuesday morning. We used to have to march out onto the square and you'd be inspected and uh, your shoes would be polished and your, for the lads, their hair would be cut a certain way. Sure. there. Be shaved and one poor guy used to have a five o'clock shadow five minutes after yeah. shaving and god love him he used to get into so much uh, you know you did shave and he'd say did so he'd have to shave twice and then shave him twice he'd be all caught and then you know the little dots of oh place. yeah and then he'd say well that's not good enough and it was like honey you couldn't win like so um um yeah so the dress was in the particular particular shoes they had to be um prey shoes on sure. tuesday uh i think there was one day I. Put Got my pretty shoes and were different shoes, should they stood out like some of them, so? Thumbs, so I got a bit of a wrap on the knuckle, knuckles for that. Um, <laughs> walking around with your hands in your pockets. You know, I was walking down the corridor, with my hands in pockets pocket. There's this, this, um, uh, I can't remember what rank he was. It was his sergeant. He said, You can't go around with your hands in your pockets. And I said, Okay, thanks for letting me know. You know, I, I was just, I was probably just, you know, in a world of my own. Um, but it's surprising there was. I was just—I think I was like a sponge. I was just taking sure, it off. Sure, you know? Now, um, looking back, just,
1: looking I back don't... at your career, though, I mean, you—you know—you've got a couple of decades under your belt.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: with the police force, was there any surprises as far as what you expected being a cop out on the street?
2: Um, I think I—I I probably surprised myself. At was it. How efficient I was at, at, I suppose, negotiating situations and and talking down. Actually, believe it or not, and how people react to you and how you learn. Your approach is so important about how people yeah. react to you, and you like you you are learning on the job. and You very quickly learn, like, you know, your approach. And it's true what they say. I mean, if you if you approach someone like they they they're your mother, brother, sister, and the whole lot you know you you get a different kind of reaction you know mm-hmm. you push people with respect you get respect and 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 there's always i always found there was a level you could you could you could converse with someone on you just had to find it and a lot of that was about listening and watching and learning um i think as well the the i think as one well what surprised me it used to surprise me how quickly you could tell Like this, this is what was amazing. I remember early on in my career, one uh, uh, more seasoned member said to me, you will know when things are about to kick off. You will know what kind of, roughly what kind of a night you were going to have. And Mm -hmm. I was thinking, what? And of course, I realized what, you know, after a couple of months and I said, yeah, you get this instinct. And I used to say, yeah, but I have the extra woman's instinct. So I, yeah. I was <laughs> I've was i got the superpower, <laughs> the superpower, but but he was right. And I, I remember you'd be in, in the city and you would get this sense of boarding, or just mm-hmm. like there was tension in the air and you couldn't quite put your finger on it. And sure enough, sure enough, you would end up, yeah, getting a few calls from buzz on the street or, you know, um, stuff like that. Um, so that 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 was kind of interesting. That sense of you know knowing, or, or or having a good idea of, and it's there were some nights there was no predicting, or some days there was no predicting. What happened, right. Yeah. What would happen? Absolutely.
1: You know? So as far as shift work goes, what shifts did you work? it was like in a seniority thing like for us everything was seniority where everybody starts out working at night it was either midnight to eight or four in the afternoon to midnight
2: No, everyone on the unit did the same they did the same shift work. yeah it used to be when i was doing it i'm trying to think i think we used to do a week of nights and used to finish by the time we'd finished the week of nights I, i i used to have to come home and do a like even anything I needed to do at home for the whole day go <laughs> to bed that night. I'd actually have to stay up because like you were weekend nights. Then it changed. to nights too late, to earlies. And you know, but everybody on the unit did the same shift. And you did oh. every second Sunday. Yeah. It wasn't about seniority. Um the only different shifts would have been if you were working in the office by day, or if you remember, in charge of the station, mm. or different ranks. You know, um, right. the sergeant of the unit would work with the unit. They stayed the same uh, hours and shift. Um, the inspector would often work with the unit or work during the day, depending on if they were okay. Um, defending cases in court or presenting cases to court. I mean, sure. Um, and mostly the superintendent and the chief superintendent would be usually there by day. You know, now, or if there was an event, you know, uh, uh, sure something going on in the city, they would be in, in even probably but not, uh, not usually, you know, yeah, yeah. You would just, but everyone, know everyone did the same bar. You were assigned to a particular role. Crime office would work their particular hours, so all the all the crime office would work the same there of the of their, their ones, but they um, but usually it was the same. They usually worked by day, but they did night work as well. Okay. Um,
1: gotcha now when you first started you were single right you had no children and you were single yeah now you know time went on you became a mom you were Mm -hmm. a wife and you have other responsibilities how did you juggle that with being on the job
2: that was uh, yeah because i suppose my i i remember at night I'd be on night duty and um, I would read a story to my son. My husband would ring me and or I would ring when it was quiet yeah. to say good night. If I was mm-hmm. on nights and um, I would uh, read, he'd say, good night, mommy. Before he mightn't have had even words at that stage. Right. But um, I'd say good night. Will I read the story? Aww. And I could read. I could read the story from memory. <laughs> um, and it's actually, I, 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 I know what story it is. It was uh, The President's Pigeon by Peter Donnelly, a fantastic Irish children's writer and illustrator. And not only that, my son said some of his first words out of that book. The now, what was Pigeon. the name of the book? The President's Pigeon.
1: The President's Pigeon. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Very and there was cool.
2: illustrations of, um, uh-huh. yeah. And, but I could read The President's Pigeon to my son, Verbatim over the phone and do the voices. So so when it was quiet, I would read, do the voices. And I remember one of my colleagues walked past and just looked at me (laughs) and I just went, I can read the story to you if you want. So, you know, I think as parents and the the lads who are dads as well, you just find your little ways to be there when you're not there. Right. You know, um, I think it was, you know, you you just found a way. You know, I I think it's it's very very hard working Christmas and Sundays. You know, when everyone is off and relaxing. Yep. Um, because your downtime might be midweek, whereas you know your family's downtime might be the weekend. But again, you 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 just worked around that. You know, you you managed it and you did what you needed to do and all that. So, you know, but yeah, that's the one standard thing. Yeah, dies to. I used to read it from memory. Yeah. And, oh, that's and, awesome. And then I'd hang up, and I'd the the you know I hang up the mobile, or I'd have to go because the phone is ringing, and then the place could be on crackers, and I'd have read, you know, like it was. It's just you know, it's just things you find, you know, to do. Um, yeah. Which, and he, he still he still loves that book, you know.
1: <laughs> so, how do you feel? Or what would you do if your son said, hey, I want to be a police officer? Mm. That's a tough one.
2: It is a tough one because, you you know yourself, Patrick, you can't unsee some things.
1: Oh, absolutely. You
2: you know, you really can't. And, you know, having been injured on duty, having dealt with traumatic and serious things, haven't gone, and and still in some ways going through, you know, the aftermath of. Sure you know, that kind of potential for injuries on duty and the the mental health aspects of it as well. Um, but then, you know, you can't, I can't stop him doing He's He's inclined to be kind of engineering, creative, like I wonder where he gets that, you know, the creative side. But um, <laughs> my husband is... Um, he he's he quantities of rare trade. So he's in, in the building and, and technical assessor and energy rating and all that. So my son is interested in lorries and, um, just the, how things work and, you know, really interested in that. So I, I don't know if you ever, but I was, uh, contacted recently by, uh, a friend's son who was, who was going into the guards mm. and, uh, I, I'll say, ask me honest questions, and I'll tell you honest answers, sure, and um i think i said i i he said if the if there was one thing you could you would go back and say to yourself, you know, and he said what what's the best advice you could give me well listen like and i think I think he got in since i'm I'm checking with him now, actually he was doing the interview at the time. And it wasn't too. And it was funny. The questions she asked me weren't anything to do with the interviews or anything like that. They were Mm. all kind of more kind of questions around reactionary stuff and feelings around things, and practical stuff as well. Like, and uh, you know, I was actually really impressed with his questions. But um, I said, you know, there's only one of you, and um, never be so heavily dependent on a job financially that if you're Mental health and wellbeing or your wellbeing suffers that you could not take a step back or walk away from it. And I said, if you know, and and it's a very important aspect, you know, when you go into a thing and it's, it's, you know, yourself, Patrick, it's a, it's a vocation and you tend to, you know, give your heart and soul to it. And then if something does happen, like an injury, if something does happen that you deal with something that's so traumatic that, that you need support with just to, to, to be your support that you can almost um i suppose what's what's the best way to describe it that you're not so financially dependent that you can't step back and take the time for yourself and you know he took that on board and everything but that would be the the one thing so yeah i have had a few um people joining at the moment coming Mm -hmm. to me and i you know i've been quite straight to answer whatever they need to know you know
1: yeah. You know, it's tough being a parent because mm. you want better for your kids. You know, yeah. you want better than what you had. And like what you said, you know, yeah. I wouldn't give up my career for anything. I, I had a blast. I, yeah. there were bad times. And like you said, you see stuff that no human being should have to see, should
2: have to see yeah. Yeah. you know, and, and you, you know, it.
1: heaps of PTSD, all kinds of, yeah. you know, <laughs> stuff that, you know, from the department itself, you know, One thing that I tell people that are, you know, thinking about or whatever is what's sad to me and almost pitiful is people just love the job so much and it becomes them. And then they don't know what to do when the job doesn't love them
2: back. Yeah. Yeah. You know, now all of a sudden, absolutely. You
1: know, it's Mm. like how I poured my heart and soul for 20 years or 25 years or 30 years, and you're going to ding me for this. You're going to, you know, and they just can't comprehend. And sometimes they can't comprehend the fact that once you're gone, the department will be just fine. Oh, yeah. Everybody is replaceable from the chief all the way down to a recruit in the police academy. And, yeah. and it has to be that way. The wheels on the bus can't stop because, hey, you know what? I mm-hmm. did my 25. Here's the badge. Here's the gun. See you. You know, but there are people and I worked with them and I know you have too, Marie, that oh, yeah, they literally think canical. that the world's yeah. going to stop if they're not yeah. a cop anymore.
2: I found personally mindfulness um, and that type of thing, because you look at what you have, you you have control over. So you've no, you've no right. control over how they react to you or, or like that if they don't love you back. But um, personally, mindfulness, I found, uh, mindfulness-based well-being is very valuable i think to to be able to to step back take that breath and 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 be you because you're you first before you're ever your profession before you ever put on that uniform before you you know you ever go out to a call and you will be you after you hang that uniform off and hand back the badge and hand back the equipment and everything and if you spend as you said your career being outside of you and not being with yourself and and often with mindfulness, I think uh, people find when they sit with themselves, which they haven't done for a very long time, they're very right. uncomfortable with what they find. Oh, yeah. And it's it's that facing that difficulty. And you're, you're almost getting to know yourself again because you, you could have been depending on what rank you retired, Like you could have and I have and I think I've said this to you before. There is no rank on a headstone. I have never seen yeah. anybody's rank on a headstone, you know, and that is the reality you know it'll be your family name you know and yeah. the, the day you the day you were born to so the day you were died Yeah, so and
1: no not to be no all doom and gloom yeah. you know i know people that have left police work or retired after their career and have thrived they've done great
2: mm. you know and it, i think it, it, it does happen it does happen and i think police officers and definitely guards i i think and i i've seen it among colleagues uh, they underestimate their abilities they underestimate uh, how they react when they go to calls, like you know i I think you know your peacemaker, your negotiator, you yeah. are you know what to do in a crisis, every call could be a crisis, you know who to call, you can do files, you can do prosecutions, you can bring things to court, and then you kind of go, but sure, you know what am I doing, and you do it so naturally, you underestimate that the unusual ability you have to encompass all of that in your day's work or in the building, you could do, you could do the, run the gamut of all that in a day's work or right. over two days work or a weekend or a week. Whereas, you know, like, and, and I think sometimes I've seen my colleagues underestimate their fantastic abilities, you know, yeah. um, their abilities to read situations, you know, all that. Yeah, you know, I- it's this cause everything to do with that. I, but I do, I do think I, I would say that would surprise me how, how, how some members underestimate their abilities it's a bit i
1: I completely agree with you so let's talk about your writing Mm -hmm. that's why we're here today (laughs) we're (laughs) gonna talk about your writing when did you first get bit by the writing bug when did you have that inclination
2: well i i used to write when i was younger so i was very good at writing well you're still young I Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I suppose. uh Thanks for that, Patrick. That, is, that that kind of rolls back now from the what age? Did you exactly.
1: I got to save myself here. <laughs>
2: um. But I. Yeah, when I was, I used to win. The, you know, when competitions weren't, you know, the obvious answer, you had to make up slogans and stuff like that. I was very, very good at winning those because, um, I could put stuff together very well. Or my my written word was quite good, and um. Yeah, I did poetry and so, but like that now, you go into the guards, you forget yourself or your, your external self. And when I was when I was injured on duty, when I was injured in line of duty like that, that's when I I I kind of discovered I need to find something that I can be good at, I suppose, yeah. and not knowing would I be good at it, but I just had to find something else that I could achieve at. And writing was it, and I I started not knowing. As I said, it was therapy, it was a coping mechanism, it yeah. was something I was doing because I had a bit of an inclination to it. So then my poetry and short stories, as I think, were um, starting to get commended and get special mentions in competitions. Um, now, this was think-
1: going on while you were still on the job, right? Yeah, I was still yeah. on the
2: job and I was recovering from the accident and yeah. doing all my my, my physio and counselling and everything. And this was some little thing I had. And I kind of went, this was making me smile. On yeah. days I was finding it hard to smile. I had a lot to smile about. I had survived, you know, and I, and all that. I'm married to a wonderful man. I still am, thankfully. Uh, he's still he so still, of still me, and amazing support in the aftermath of the accident, both physically and mentally because it was quite physically damaged as well, but um, and just that that's something else that that made me smile that just gave me something creative and new that I could find you know you you create a sentence, you come to the end of it and read it back and go, That's not bad. How can I make it better and then that kind of rolling on. You know, and, and the writing and the amazing people I met uh, over the course of my writing, you know, with that yeah. is and 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 the feeling you get when you're in a room with creatives. I mean, I'm just back from a uh, writing residency that you no know, Notre Dame, if I pronounce that right. Yes, you did. Uh, Notre Dame Global Center in Colmore Abbey. um, it was incredible, a writing residency there. and um. It's just being being writers. It's just incredible, the creating and just that buzz and that energy.
1: Yeah, you know, writing can be a very solitary thing where Mm -hmm. it's just you and whatever. And it's so much fun to go to a conference or any kind Mm. of retreat or anything like that and chit chat with other writers because there ain't a whole lot of us out there. You know, out of my like friend circle, I am the only one, you know, we're a bunch of knuckle dragging Neanderthals, you know, I I go lift weights and ride motorcycles and do fun stuff like that, you know, and And it's,
0: yeah, smoke cigars. (laughs) Yes,
1: absolutely. You know, nobody is like, yeah, I've got this deadline, you know, I, 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 I gotta do a thousand words at least today, you know, and people look at you like, are you mad? You know, are you crazy? Yeah. So, yeah, it's, yeah, that, that's awesome. So, did you ever have any formal like writing training?
2: I have done like short courses, or okay. I've done uh, editing courses. But I actually realised when I started writing, I'm very good at grammar, mm. and I suppose like I was, I've been two decades writing files.
0: <laughs> <laughs> true.
2: So, and you're reflecting a situation. Um, that someone who hasn't been in the situation and you're writing reports and doing statements and the whole lot, but that meant nothing because the writing fiction is all a whole different.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a different beast, but it is good <laughs> training.
2: It is, but it is good training. Yes. And, and stringing a sentence together and we'll say, saying what you need to say in, in a short space of time, getting a point across in a short space of time as well, that was good practice. But, um, oh yeah, when it, when it came to writing, is was a, no info dump. No too much detail. No kind yeah. of da 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 da. Um. And as my writing developed, I I realized as well. Uh, I'm good at dialogue and stuff. And okay. and I actually start my writing. I suppose I describe writing like a um, like a building. So you know when you go to write first is the lift shaft. You know you can't have. The, you don't end up with the building. You know it has to start somewhere. And you know when people are saying, but you know the stress of the end product. So your first draft is like the lift shaft going into the building mm-hmm. and the core of which everything is built around. So my dialogue is like the lift shaft. So I have my um, my characters chatting and uh, to get the nuts and bolts of the story out. And I add then I build on on those scenes then. But once I have the core of my characters chatting and giving the gist of the scene, what's going to come out of that scene and how I need that conversation to go and where because you know yourself as we're talking here even you know conversations go in a certain direction so what purpose am I trying to achieve in telling this chapter and telling this story that my that the conversation has to go because you have your idea of nothing is in there that's redundant you know it has to mean something it has to go somewhere so there's all that kind of back and forth for us. so that's my kind of lift shaft of the building and then after that then I'm Everything is built around it, so that's what kind of so formal training. That really is just, I suppose, just writing and writing. Like this is my debut novel, but it's actually the sixth book I've written.
1: Right? This, you know, yeah. As people are funny, you know, it's like, oh man, they were an overnight success after thirty years of crying. You know,
2: (laughs) the long road to being an overnight sensation.
1: Yeah, exactly. So does writing come easy to you or is it do you feel like it's a natural thing or
2: uh it i think a awful lot of, lots of writing as you know Patrick's not just sitting down the the laptop or the notebook writing actually i prefer the, i type quicker than i write because of the damages the damage from the um the injury and duty and stuff my fine motor skills are affected but so i type a lot quicker than i write and um I find that, yeah, I have to do an awful lot of thinking of the scene. So I think very visually. So usually, if I go for a walk, I'm thinking visually, or in the mm. shower, or doing something else, usually. Right. And a scene is breaking through. And I, because when I go down, when I sit down to write, then I have a general gist of the scene that I'm going to write or oh, where I want to take the scene. So I don't often write in linear order. I okay. use Scrivener. Um, because I can switch it around. So I don't Mm. necessarily because this, this, the sequel to this novel, I wrote the 13th chapter first, actually, you know, so yeah, it was, it was a murder and um, I kept thinking this is not the start of it. This is not the start of it, you know, but I, 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 I think that, okay, what has to happen in between? Where does it go? So I suppose um, that never leaves you that idea of a new story. I don't think it ever leaves you. And while that goes on in my head, i will (laughs) be (laughs) writing,
1: you know? Well, the book that just came out, book one of the Dublin thrillers, uh, books, deceit. Deceit. When you were writing that book,
2: (laughs) I'm waving at a Patrick. Yeah, yeah, I know. My my crime writing pseudonym Casey King. (laughs) Yes.
1: So when you were writing this, Mm-hmm. You know, your main character is Danielle, correct?
2: Yeah. Danielle Lewis. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Did you have a certain like actress in mind for for Danielle when you were writing her?
2: I didn't really. I just had a real vivid vision of her when I was writing. And as you can see by the cover, the cover artist got her bang on. So I'm wondering, who do you, who do you think she looks like? Um I...
1: Well, I got to say, the cover is great. Yeah. You know, whoever did your cover did a fa- fabulous job.
2: I Well, I think the cover cover art by um, Neb- Nebosa Zorik. Okay. And I apologize if I have pronounced that wrong, but that's in the inside cover. Yeah, so yeah. that is who did the cover. And actually, the cover to book two, the sequel called Exposed, Has the same image but different coloring and different, Mm -hmm. slightly different background, it just lines up so lovely. It does, plus the titles. So you have deceit that's exposed, and the third one has another name, you know, with the with F. So, you know, making the order of the series in kind of alphabetical order. So, if someone comes and says, Oh, which order is it then? Just actually, we're trying to kind of get (laughs) it in alphabetical order a bit. Since we're talking about.
1: Since we're talking about deceit, why don't you kind of give us a quick synopsis of what the story is all about?
2: Well, the I can they, they did the blurb absolutely brilliant. So it's they say it's a story as old as time. Boy meets girl, meets boy. Their marriage promises peace between their feuding families. Then it all falls apart. So ten years ago, someone tried to kill her. Um, Danielle Lewis's marriage to Jason Flynn brings together the warring Dublin crime families. It should be a joyous union, but someone tries to take her life. So basically, that's it. That's a gist Just the blurb. But the backstory is she was shot and lost herself and Jason's unborn child. And she then fled Dublin. And subsequently, the detective who saved her life was also murdered. So new information has come to light, which may solve who put the hate out on her and subsequently solve the detective's murder. Uh, the person who persuades her back to Dublin is actually the detective's wife. She's also a detective and she also lost her unborn child in the aftermath of the tragedy. Oh, and boy. that is where their connection is. Oh, okay. as anybody listening knows, grief does not discriminate.
0: Right.
2: So I had to find a bond with those two women. That could break down a lot of barriers. So why would a criminal part of a criminal enterprise collaborate with a detective and married the two? They shared grief, you know, and that's just the backstory. And I open with Danielle um, discreetly as she thinks coming into Dublin Airport, and um, she is bundled into a car. And she does not know what's happening. And in the meantime, then her cousin Dean is making drug collections in, in around Dublin. So everything's going on. And it's a decade on since she's been in Ireland. She's since she's been back in the family. So the Lewis family's enterprise and criminality has escalated in a decade. Decades a long time in criminality. It is. And the peace with the Flynns is really kind of just, you know, it's liable to be. Fraction, you know, fractured at any moment. So her mm. return kind of sets, sets some cat among the pigeons, some sure. proverbial hitting the fan. So <laughs> that, and there's all that old, you know, politics surfacing, res- unresolved issues. And she she's there trying to discover who has been involved in, okay. who can she trust and who has been involved in putting the hit out in her. And subsequently, who possibly killed the detective.
1: So this came out September 21st here in the States. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How long did it take you to write that book?
2: That book was written. And I, you know, I have to give a shout out to my agent here, Kate Nash. Um, we, I was pitching this and we, we actually sat there. We had a call, a zoom call. and um, We had a brainstorm, a fantastic brainstorming session on this because I had written something she was submitting it and we were kind of having a, a chat about you know where I'd go if the what I was I'm just plugging the my computer <laughs> Patrick. just I disappeared off there for a second that's okay but, um, yeah myself and Kate we were having this chat about you know where she goes you know she because because Kate and represents the writer as opposed to just the book so she had submitted a book for me which was universally loved universally rejected and I had written um, a thriller as well and a very hard sell thriller for a debut author. So I was getting all this feedback back. So she sat down, we sat down and I said, look, we can could, could we get our heads together? And she says, of course we can. So she said to me, can you do Gangland? Can you write Gangland? And I said, oh yeah, watch me. <laughs> you know, watch me. As <laughs> so I said, to you, hold my earrings. But um, <laughs> I was there, yeah. And um, we, you know, we, we traveled spit out a few ideas and the whole lot. And she, we'd arranged another meeting and she said, come up with something there and come back to me. So, yeah, I came up with an, a, an idea of this, you know, about the collaboration between the criminal and the detective and the whole lot. And I wrote a sample piece and she went, let's keep going with this. And Please. we kept going with this. And um, it, and then there was deceit. The I'd have written, the first draft written in a few months. And I sent it off to her, and she gave me a bit of feedback on it. And then we were ready to submit it, so she went submitting. Wow! And, so you wrote
1: this book in two months? Your first draft?
2: I wrote the first draft. I'd say two to four months. Okay. You know, give or take, and that yeah. was including a bit of brainstorming. But that was the first draft. So sure, there was a bit to be done. Um, I would have sent second or third draft to her. She came back with some suggestions. Mm-hmm. Um she had an assistant in the office. It was fabulous with suggestions as well, it came back to me. So I did a bit of a rework on it, work up on it, a bit of polishing. And yeah, it was it was literally ready to go then. So she sent it out. Yeah.
1: So you set it out into the wild September twenty first. It went live. Yes, How nervous were you?
2: Yes. Oh my god, so nervous. I <laughs> you know, I'm trying not to curse here, Patrick. You know, you can say I, whatever you want. I was <laughs> so shitting it i was just going and then i felt relief though you know yes it's a huge relief yeah i was i was you know i kind of felt i told you i was writing you see when i couldn't reach you for coffee i was writing (laughs) when i couldn't do this i was writing and it was like kind of because i love going to the retreats i love going to launches i love supporting other writers and it's lovely to do that and people would always ask me, and how's yours going? I've got another rejection and I'm writing something different. And this is book six and the whole lot. So there was all that going on. It was sure. all kind of not there yet, not quite yet, not there yet. So I think it was relief. But then, you know, it goes up on neck alley and you, you dare some of the reviews and you go, Oh my God, you know, <laughs> was it? And then you go, was it ready? Was it really ready? And like, <laughs> you've had yourself and the editor and probably another editor and a proofreader and the marketing crew and the cover crew and Jaffe books and they're just going and I go, like, oh my gosh, is there something I, I've missed, you know? <laughs> and like, no, because they're, they're an amazing team. They're an incredible sure. crew and uh, the, you know, the you know, Emma, my editor, came back to me a couple of times with different things. We was check this and we double check. It was always double and triple checking, you know, and, you know a, the, the, and it was never um y- there was always great kind of back and forth in the sense of you know flexibility It was not this is happening and and, and this is it you know there was always a bit of um i suppose there was irish slang and irish dialect mm-hmm. as well and um you know just to give an example right i i i've mentioned it before we're recording here danielle drinks likes drinking dingle whiskey and, uh, cause I was asked by someone about something unusual that I researched. I said, I have to taste the Dingle whiskey to make sure what she'd like, you know?
1: <laughs> of course you did.
2: So really, cause it's, it really is, it's down, it's on the Wild Atlantic Way and they're an amazing company, amazing distillery. And I, I, I had to put it in because I love going on the, the tour there and everything. Right. I mean, it's grown so well. And so, uh, like I, I put in, but Irish whiskey is spent with an E. W-H-I-S-K-E-Y. Okay. As opposed to Scotch or American oh, whiskey. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And look, just even small things like that, like between. And and I go off and be saying, when actually the E is N-O-I to distinguish her from Scotch. And she's probably going, this is just information I don't need. Yeah. <laughs> but she's probably, she probably has a catalogue of going. Stuff that Casey King has told me that I really don't need, but you never know. I might be on the chase in the future and might need to answer these questions. You know? And there was, there, you know, there was a bit of that. And um, it was checking, double checking, and proofreading. But sure. still, it was still kind of, oh my God, is it ready? Will people like it? And as I was saying to you oh, earlier, yeah. I have a lot of my friends supporting me and people that know me and know I'm writing. I will get this book to support you and thumbs up. Well done. And then I'm getting messages going, That's actually really good. this is put me up all night this is a page turner and I go yeah thanks for supporting me but what did you think you were getting you were getting a good product (laughs) like you know and that is like a double compliment so it's kind of like oh yeah we support you by your book and actually god oh yeah oh really you know and when is the next and that's really lovely as well you know right and I think now I've settled into the idea of it being out there a bit more it's out a week and I, I'm settling into the idea of being a bit more, and you're checking the sales rank of the Amazon sales, and then you're going into the top 100, and you're going, oh my God, and the bestseller flag, and all that, and one of the categories. And you know, you're kind of, and then you watch it going down again and up again. And you're oh, of, yeah. Stop it's, doing that because I'm, it will drive the you crazy.
1: <laughs> That's for sure. But yeah. on uh, the uh, Amazon page, you know, USA Today bestseller Andy Newton says about your book expertly crafted characters with a pacey heart pounding plot
2: Mm, how does that make you
1: feel when you hear something like that
2: yeah actually my heart is pounding you know hearing it because it's (laughs) kind of like going yeah people are reading it and people are getting it you know um and people are getting the characters. And my agent has said, I feel as if I if I walk down Dublin, I'm going to meet these people.
0: Sweet. You know? <laughs> You're
1: doing it right then. Now, book two, Exposed, that comes out December 14th. Yes. Are there going to be any more books in this series after?
2: Yes. I'm currently writing another one. Um, the, so even though it's coming out December 14th, it sounds like, oh, I wrote it kind of quickly. No, that's not the way because... I signed this deal in May of last year, and there were two delays in the publication date. It was meant to mm. be out in April and then June. So, while I was waiting for back, I continued writing book two. So, book two took me about eight or 10 months to write. So, even though it's out in December, which is quite quickly after this one, which is great because people don't need to hang around to know what happens next in Danielle's life. So, that was written over the course of of the 10 months. And that's where I'm doing actually got edits back yesterday for I sent it back yesterday for but I'm actually working on the third in the series now so Danielle is still still telling me she wants to be written so of course um so I've picked up threads from um one into two obviously um there's just a minor aspect and one that's become a major aspect in two so and then there's something in book one that's coming, come into book three and there's something in two into book four. So that's the, the way I'm going to cross it over.
1: Okay. Now we have a couple of Facebook questions from the Cops and Writers Facebook group. Let's take a peek at those real quick. All right. Mick Halpin asks, Ireland is a dramatically different country than it was a few decades ago. What changes had you seen in terms of the crimes and criminals over the course of your career,
2: definitely um thanks, Mike, by the way, and thanks for your support as well. Uh, the amazing support Mike has a Facebook group there for um Irish crime writing fans. He's a moderator and administrator there does a great job um, the, the yeah, the crimes are different. um even you know, searching people um the different the different drugs that were there you know, um, that have, and, and the range of availability on the street, the, um, you know, before it used to be like when I worked in the city first, there, there was no heroin on the street or anything like that. Wow. Believe it or not, you know, there was nothing like that. Yeah. Like there wasn't much cocaine in the country. There was probably a bit of hash, bit of cocaine. And that was kind of, you know, it um, just, I suppose they, the enhancement of the technology side of criminality, there was, of course, there was no um there was no cybercrime as such, sure. you know, um because it wasn't we we hadn't like we hadn't phones, mobile phones. You right. Uh as, as such. And when you had them, there was no texting, there was nothing like that. And they were the the probably the the Nokia's the the ones we need to go back to now to get out social media and, and and switch off. But um there was that, and so that kind of crime. Um, things that with stolen burglaries, you might see a different trend on things being stolen and burglaries. You know, yes. um, as televisions got bigger, they <laughs> they just steal. You know, right, right, um, and and that type of societal change, um, and just the, maybe the way you interact with people, um, how people are in person and with on the phone, and almost you know as. As police officers, you'd ring ring people to do with stuff or arrangements or you know, and people are so unused to taking calls these days. they're kind of shocked when people ring. um they say that kind of thing would have changed, but definitely a different trend in crime. Um, different crimes happen different types of years, the seasonal crimes, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. and um so you'd know that as well from from the year's work, and you'd know when you'd come into winter, maybe you might have more burglaries or or more, sorry, more the summer when people were away on holidays. and But now people are advertising on social media where they're going, what right. they're doing. It. Right. And the amount of information that is available on people is actually so scary. Um, the amount of information people give away about themselves as well. Um, there was never that. I mean, it was sure. all local knowledge knowing who you knew, who you had in your community.
0: Sure, sure, sure. There was no such
2: thing as as, as checking Facebook or yeah. Instagram or Twitter yeah. to find out who someone was, and you know they—they, they, yeah, you know—they just uh, the idea and the warnings that have come out then. But don't be telling where you're going on holidays that you're going on holidays because that'll increase the burglaries. And you, great right you know, you don't realize so, how much they're giving away about themselves.
1: He's got a bonus question: What Irish mm-hmm. stereotypes do you hate seeing in books, films, and TV? Who leaves the cliches behind, and who gets it right?
2: Well. I, I was. I thought this. I was actually. Uh, I, I was actually watching something last night. But in general, the I suppose the Irish cliche, cliches are the kind of just as everyone loves the sing song and the pints of the pub. You know that kind of way. Well, not always. <laughs> but <laughs> but it, do you know when you're when you see something or, or read something and the detective thinks they're more senior to the uniform guards of the same rank, and they talk down to them as if they're idiots. I absolutely hate mm. that. that. Absolutely, was Do you know. And it's fine when they're briefing them, like the bill used to be, or you know, the whole lot. Or the bill is was um, a, a UK based program, with the the police over there was mm. brilliant. Um, or I was actually watching Vera. I love it, absolutely love it. And and Cleves wrote the books of the character on which the back character is based. And like that now the, the detective was say With your briefing the group and he goes, go, 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 then he was saying to people, you know, kind of like, you know, what are you doing standing around? And it's that kind of attitude that uniforms are only there to, you know, do the grunt work. Right. You know, and, and without their own separate intelligence. Because out of you have to be in uniform first before you're a detective, you have to be uniform sergeant before you're a detective sergeant. So there, there there's all that. So that's kind of the stereotype. But then you look at the wire and McNulty in the wire, you know the the you got the issue You got the wire sitting in Baltimore
0: yes, yes, yeah yeah
2: yeah the and it was Elba was in that as well, and the character McNulty was the hard drink and hard womanizing detective, but they 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 did McNulty he did that character very very well, and it's that kind of trope of you know the hard drinking detective and the, that's not always the case you know um it's it's kind of but when it's done well it's done well but right. not every detective is like that not every i mean you have a personal life but it can be a good personal life too you know
1: right and you know what what hollywood you know fails to see is you know i guess there's expectations from the people reading the books watching the movies etc you know they expect you know it's like, okay it's the lone wolf detective breaking all the rules you know to get his and he's the only one working on this case and it's like yeah. of course not but there's expectations and they're trying to match those up and yeah
2: and in my head it's going they would be disciplined they would never
1: get Oh, movie. oh absolutely so they'd be fired you know, <laughs> <I'm>, yeah <laughs> or they'd be you know, going to jail themselves they'd be going to prison it's like no exactly, we don't do yeah. that that's yeah. that's illegal. We can't do that.
2: But All it's right. done well, you know, like the wire is a good example now. And We On the Streets was the, a, another one based in Baltimore a couple of years later. Um but it's done well, it's done really well, you know, and, yeah. and the interactions. I'm I'm trying to think the Sopranos was mostly the the gang stuff they didn't have much interaction with the police, they had a few bits of interaction right. with the detectives. And I thought that was that was really good as well, you know, the way yep. the way that was handled and done, you know, I loved that. Yes, I I, I enjoyed. There too. are those programs you wish that you. Someone said to me they hadn't seen The Wire, and I said you were so lucky that you were going to experience that for the first time. That and Breaking Bad. I was going. I wish I was back there.
1: <laughs> we'll tell you what. We are running late here. As it's always fun talking to you, Marie, and just time just just flies by, you know. So, what's next for you? What What's on the agenda? More books in this series.
2: Definitely, I'm working on a third in this series. As I said there's deceit exposed, and there'll be another one that I probably can't reveal the name of yet. Okay. Um, but my that'll be Danielle Lewis. What's happening to her down the line? I have I have a couple of other books in this series. I'm thinking overall with this series there might even be six books in. It. I'm not sure yet. Okay. But I do I do have um a psychological thriller set on the Wild Atlantic Way in Dingle. And um it is I I I the first line of it is I will never forget the look on his face the first time he saw me in his dead wife's dress. Mm-hmm. That is called What Came Before and that is currently going on submission by my agent soon. So here's hoping that we'll have our Casey King written Danielle Lewis um series and Casey King will be right will be publishing the Psych Thriller. so it's just the uh, the range. I've I've actually crime comedy written as well, but maybe the world isn't ready for that yet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but it's just I I love the psych thrillers. is the hardest thing to write, and I've this one written, um, quite a while. But the the it, the time is right now to send it out. So that's going on submission while I work on book three. Basically, you know, okay. I'm about I'm about. I'd say 20,000 words into book three. So okay. I have an idea of where it's going to go, where the rash, what's happening. I had to do a list of who I hadn't killed off and <laughs> <laughs> who, who survived the first two books. and you know.
1: Okay. All right. Well, this is a good place for us to stop, I think. Where can people learn more about you and your books? Where can they go?
2: Well, I'm on Twitter at Let's Talk Crime. And I'm on Facebook as Casey King. And I think my handle there is Let's Talk Crime as well. Now, I don't have a great handle on Instagram. I'm getting there. Okay. <laughs> but it would be Let's Talk Crime. We're on so for international coaching and mentoring. Um, so there, there are all the socials, really, um, that people can get me on. I'm appearing at Murder One in Dublin at the Crime Writing Festival on this six the saturday the i've just done promo video first so i should know the seventh saturday the 7th of october where i will be reading from deceit and books will be available for sale there so if anyone's around john leary uh come on down to murder one um there's fabulous lineup there that's the next thing and i have an interview with one of the papers coming up soon and yeah after that who knows
1: excellent all right well thank you so much for being on the show it's always a pleasure.
2: Thank you, Patrick.
1: Thank you, Marie O'Hellerin, for being on the show and sharing your intriguing career with the Angarda Chikona and your author career that is taking off like a rocket. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Cops and Writers Podcast. If you haven't done so yet, could you take a minute and rate and review the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts? If you have already, thank you. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, could you please share this show with family and friends? that's how we grow as always thank you for all of your support and of course let's be careful out there